welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. As we two together are rereading the novels of one of our favorite authors, Patrick O'Brien. Mike, catch us up, would you please? How far into the Aubrey Matron canon have we got? And how far are we going to get through it this week? Well, and here we are, as we say every week, on the last full book, now pressing into chapter three. And last week, we finished chapter two, where Lord Barmouth, the commander-in-chief, had sped up the surprises repairs to Jack's surprise in order to get Jack away from his wife. They were headed towards Madeira. The big shipyard there had burned down. Wantage, free from the shepherds, had rejoined the ship and was harassed by Store, a new midshipman. Stephen's high hopes for seeing Christine Woods were interrupted by the fire, and his quick trip to England to consult with Sir Joseph about their mission to Chile. This time, yeah, Jack hurries to get his ship repaired if the mission to Chile is still on while Stephen works to confirm that mission with Sir Joseph. There's a good bit of family time for some. Mm -hmm. A royal connection adds to the midshipman's berth as Stephen's watch, which we've revisited so many times in the canon, works its way back into the story once again. Fantastic. So much going on in this chapter. Um, Lots to get into, so let's make a start. We're in London, of course, and Sir Joseph, the spymaster, is really glad to set eyes on Stephen again, despite the fact that Stephen has had to change into better clothes just in the nick of time from his visit to the Grapes earlier on. Sir Joseph has had his codebreakers decode this garbled, fumbled, encoded message from Dr. Jacobs, and it turns out that an important and reasonably well-supplied group of Chileans have contracted with Sir David Lindsay, formerly of the Royal Navy, to come to command their naval forces. So there's a usurper on the scene for Jack Aubrey's mission. The sources of this information include some of the men that Stephen knows from his work in Peru, but none of the Chileans that Stephen had met with. None of those are listed in Jacob's Chilean committee. And the text tells us what the, what these worries look like to Stephen. Some of the names Stephen saw with pleasure the names of the sources rather than those of the committee, the latter with distaste, anger, and sometimes distrust. And once again, once again, he realized the fragility of these movements for liberation. So many who wished to be leaders, so few to follow. Mm. And that that has no kind of resonance for today, does it? Oh, no. Mm. (laughs) Anyhow, Stephen wonders to himself if there might be different people working for independence in the north versus the south of Chile. And he and Sir Joseph have this rather guarded exchange about their impressions of this guy, Sir David Lindsay, this ex-naval officer on his way as well on a separate mission to Chile, known to be quarrelsome and a potential rival for Jack and Stephen. Well, Sir Joseph says he's going to need to check with his superiors, but he believes Captain Aubrey should just continue with the original plan in spite of the delays, assess the possibilities when he arrives in Valparaiso, and then proceed accordingly. Blaine says he has a representative in Buenos Aires who can get messages back to England much faster than any messages which have to come back around the horn. Blaine doubts Sir David has arrived yet. He says that Aubrey's likely to have to cooperate with Sir David once they get there. 
but they have to be assured that they give no official countenance to Sir David's actions, that he is not working you know, with the committee's approval. This is an independent right. arrangement by the Chileans, and Blaine doesn't want the government involved in that. Blaine is waiting on the naval attaché's report from Madrid to learn the present Chilean government's strength and the number of armed merchantmen at their disposal. He also reminds Stephen that going into all this, they need to know the attitude of the Peruvian viceroy. So they're kind of going down their checklist here. Blaine says he's going to consult with all his colleagues and superiors and that he will get back to Stephen tomorrow with the official okay and invites him to come drink tea with him at his home in Shepherd's Market to deliver the official news and perhaps share a few specimens he's been collecting. Well, this is the first of a few different kinds of homecoming that we're going to have in this chapter. Remember, all the way through quite a lot of the Yellow Admiral and all of the 100 days, Jack and Stephen have been away, deployed, as you might say. But now we're going to get the chance to remake some of those connections back at home. Stephen's back at the grapes. He greets Sarah and Emily, who have grown so much that he no longer needs to bend down to kiss them. They've been entertaining their new friend, William Reed of the Ringle. Mrs. Broad welcomes Stephen, but he's shocked at how he looks, her and everybody else. She says she's no longer going to give anything to Killick to eat or drink at the grapes because of the sad way that he let down uh, the doctor in sending him away without all of his, uh, his clothing there. She, meanwhile, lays out the splendid clothes that she's got there for Stephen. The girls show him their schoolwork. They recite verses in English and French. Stephen's surprised that the girls who learned lower deck English and quarter deck English so quickly aboard ship hadn't done any better learning here at home uh, the, the French language. Even so, he's really taken when the two of them serve the Doctor and Reed with this really excellent dinner that they've prepared themselves. I, th- I think he sees a, a career for them as, right. as, as, as cooks of some kind. And both he and Reed give them really hearty congratulations. And we still have food and refreshment on our mind when Stephen decides to go join Sir Joseph for tea, only to learn that Sir Joseph had stopped by Somerset House already to pick up a specimen sent to Stephen. And uh, he opens this parcel from none other than Christine Wood with, as, as we'd expected for a while now, Mike, the delicately dissected and reassembled bones of the potto. And Mike, I, I don't know whether at this point he can assume anything about whether she's got any of his earlier letters but at least now he sees at least some some recognition of the connection between them. And he gazes upon these bones with, as the text says, a mixture of friendship and scientific interest. Yeah, right, Stephen. Right, right. Well, Stephen's really caught up in this box and thinking about Christine. But then he looks up and he sees Sir Joseph's expression and attitude. And Stephen quickly closes the box, thinking that Sir Joseph is about to come to an important matter. I'm sure if it's Stephen, he's thinking, okay, what's what's the word on the Chilean mission? But Sir Joseph, in a falsely casual tone, says, you know, I believe, Stephen, that you're well acquainted with the Duke of Clarence, Prince William. Mm. Stephen bows because he never discusses his patience, and, and Clarence was a patient of his. Blaine continues embarrassed, saying that he ran into Clarence at the Admiralty this morning, and that someone had indiscreetly told the prince about Captain Aubrey's hydrographical mission, only the hydrographical mission, nothing about the political mission. Blaine says that the prince has always had a great respect for Captain Aubrey, 
and doesn't want to present himself directly to the captain, even though he's normally not shy in such matters. Well, Stephen <laughs> reflects that Clarence is a bounding, confident, foul-mouthed scrub going, yeah, yeah, he's not shy at all, right? Well, it turns out that Clarence has had a child by a woman, not his wife, as he has been one to do. And he does not openly acknowledge this child, but pretends to be his uncle, presenting him as the son of a former now deceased shipmate. And Blaine continues that Uncle William, air quotes, would like this boy, Horatio Fitzroy Hansen, admitted to Captain Aubrey's midshipman's berth for the coming voyage and hopes that Stephen will use his influence with Captain Aubrey. Hmm. Ian, what do you think about this? Well, this guy, Prince William, is in due course going to become King William IV. So he's the heir to the throne. And there's a real-world story behind this idea of the illegitimate uh, child, or in the real-world children. William had, I think, 10 illegitimate children with his mistress, the actress Mrs. Jordan, um, over many, many years. and whatever the cover story might be about being an uncle, I think the fact that this boy's surname is given as Fitzroy gives us a clue because Fitz means son of and Roy kind of means king. And in the real world, these 10 illegitimate children of Prince William's were all given the surname Fitzclarence, as in son of Clarence. So I haven't got much remaining doubt that this boy is the son of Prince William heir to the throne. And it's an interesting twist that it's Stephen, the anti-privilege, anti-influence, libertarian, who is the one who's twisting Jack Aubrey's arm to take on this kid as a bit of privilege and uh, and patrimony here. He says then that he'll mention this to Captain Aubrey in his next letter and suggest that they perhaps should not mention the alleged or presumed parenthood connection that this boy has. And he says, is it true then that the hydrographical mission, the military mission to Chile is going ahead? And so Joseph has to backtrack a minute. He says, I apologize. We should have started with that, but I've been being harangued by Clarence with this uh, with this request. The mission is going to go ahead, but he warns Stephen that this is peacetime now and rigid economy is the order of the day. We, we don't get to find out, Mike, whatever happened to the big stash of cash that was apparently set aside for the wartime version of this mission. Presumably the civil servants have got their hands on it now, mm. but the funding available for today's version of this mission is going to be nothing like the funds that were sent in to help in uh, in Peru in that abortive mission, what was it, four or five books ago now. Stephen says, okay, I'm not going to delay matters by hand-carrying myself the orders back to Jack Aubrey. What I'm going to do is go to Wolcombe. I'm going to see Bridget and Sophie Aubrey and the Aubrey family. And Mike, uh, another bit of homecoming coming up here for Stephen, right? Nice. Really love that. Well, O'Brien does another one of these beautiful transitions. You know, he tells us that before he left that, you know, in the meeting with Sir Joseph, Sir Joseph has shown Stephen some of his latest acquisitions. And now on Pata's homecoming, Stephen thinks to himself, some of the Beatles were indeed truly remarkable, but for beauty, it seemed to Matron that his daughter, Sophie, and even her children surpassed them in everything but color. And so... Yeah, what a what a fascinating comparison in Stephen's mind between Sir Joseph's exquisite Beatles and this exquisite family that he now sees here. It, it's funny, Mike. He might not have made that comparison a few books ago. A few books right. ago, his inner dialogue would have been, "Yeah, the kids are fine, but I really like my Beatles." 
Right, right. So true. Well, he pulls up. He didn't have time to send word ahead, so they are not expecting him. They're actually all playing cricket in the yard when he arrives. Bridget sees him step out of the chase first and cries. The text writes, it's my papa. And she flings down her bat, runs like a hare across the grass, leaps up to catch him around the neck. O'Brien says, no shyness, no hesitation. It fairly touched his heart. My dear, you have grown almost pretty, he said tenderly, <laughs> putting her down to greet the others. Boy, what a, I, I, you know, I know, I know Stephen's more Irish than English, but I remember receiving these, the really height of English compliments thinking, yeah, so, oh, that wasn't half bad. Thank you. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. 10 out of 10, right? Yeah, not, not hideous at all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, but I'm, I'm just so touched by Stephen having this moment with Bridget. It's great, isn't it? And this whole scenario is really touching as well. We've been waiting for this for a long time, for many, many chapters. He gets to spend some really pleasant days in the English summertime. There were, we learn, reports of a hoopoe seen three times at Chiddingfold Parsonage. And I'm not too bothered about Chiddingfold and its parsonage, but I am interested in the hoopoe, Mike. That's a, a call way back to the beginning of Master and Commander Upopa Epops, the bird that he saw as he was just having his first conversations with Jack Aubrey. It's a little spine-tingling moment to see the connection going way back to the beginning of the stories here. I think in total, the hoopoe came up three times in chapter one of Master and Commander. And then nothing about it again until book 14 and book 19, and now again in book 20. So O'Brien is really, he's enjoying, and I guess he wants us to enjoy these little signifiers of that tender moment way back at the beginning of the whole story. Stephen takes Bridget out and he passes along to her the names of all these different insects and birds and other animals that they see together as they travel about. And besides appreciating that she's grown almost pretty, he appreciates that she's really receptive to all this learning about nature. And he's glad that there's not going to be hunting or fishing because he's not sure how she'll like it. And she might really dislike the idea of taking the life of a, of a living thing. Now, mixed in with their joy, there's a sadness that we're picking up from their surroundings here. And we learn the consequences, the economic consequences for the local people of the end of the war. All the soldiers and sailors are attempting to find civilian work. That pushes down wages. One of the farms, one, one farm alone in the, uh, in the Millport land, the land that paid Jack £450 the prior year, now had a tax bill of over £383. And since neither Cousin Edward nor the Aubrey land had been enclosed, the villagers and their returning sons and their younger brothers had all got along moderately well in the traditional way, even though quite a bit of Jack's stock of game had dwindled away. On the other hand, on a nearby estate that was strictly enclosed, there was not even a single rabbit to be seen. So, Mike, people are having hard times, and despite the joy of the reunion here, everything is not okay for the ordinary people in England at the end of the war here. Yeah, and it's fascinating how O'Brien's kind of going to great pains to point out that the Aubrey commoners are doing okay because yeah. of the way they're managing this. And boy, in these enclosed things, people can't make a living anymore. Right. We've had these reduced plots. There are all these you know, decreases in profits. There are increases in taxes. Really a fascinating trip back to the Yellow Admiral and, and its continuing consequences here. Indeed. Well... We hear that Sophie had been looking forward to an indefinite time of peace with her husband's company. 
Now hearing of this certain hydrographical voyage to the uttermost point of the inhabited world, she's not really happy. It fills her with an intense disapproval and a vexation of spirit, even though Stephen tries to keep pointing out that it's going to dramatically enhance Jack's likelihood of getting a flag. And Stephen starts to try to console her again, but then realizes, as the text says, Consolation, after all, does imply a superiority of experience or just plain intellect on the part of the consoler, a superiority which an intensely discontented mind is unlikely to accept. Thought to myself, all right, another great O'Brien insight that deserves its own place on a coffee cup, although it's probably (laughs) too big, but it bears keeping in mind for sure here. Well, so instead of trying to dissuade her yet again or console her, Stephen decides to go to Shelmerston instead. Bridget, George, his sisters are all keen to go with Padine running alongside. And riding along, Stephen points out the only pair of purple herons in three kingdoms, noting that once again, they've managed to bring off their brood together. So he'd call me nostalgic or sentimental, but... I'm starting to check off all these characters that I'm glad to get to visit with at least one more time. So thank you, O'Brien, for bringing the brood together yet again. Amen. And another great revisitation, we get to Shelmiston. And we get a little recap of what Shelmiston is for anybody who might have forgotten. It's an indifferent port inhabited by fishermen, deep sea sailors, and other seamen, any one of whom would turn smuggler, highly skilled and enterprising smuggler, at the drop of a hat or of a private signal from a French chasse in the offing. This is the place where Jack had manned his privateer, mixing men of war's men and Shelmistonians. This is a place that had always been kind to the Aubrey and Maturin wives and children. Stephen walks into the Williams Head Inn, hardly likely to be a coincidence that the pub is the Williams Head, given that we're talking about the Duke of Clarence. Right. And he greets there the landlady, Mrs. Hake, who's delighted to see the doctor, and they start to catch up on news. Out in the town of Shelmerston, there are former shipmates, particularly those that he had treated in the past, who came by to greet him, to talk about the barky. But he noticed that they were shyer than usual, and he invites several of them to have a pot of ale and asks why the uneasiness. And the same story is going on here in Shelmerston as was going on in Wilcombe. They tell him that the end of the war means the end of being sure that their families will have enough to eat. And it means just a little money being sent home from their wages and from prize money. In the piece, he says, they've all fallen on hard times. So they'd been really happy to learn that his honor, that's Captain Aubrey, they'd been really happy to learn that his honor had taken a dozen of them this morning and gladder still about his need for a bigger crew for the upcoming journey. Since even though it's going to be hard lying, and we've heard already in the previous chapters that this is not going to be a pleasure cruise, Even given that, they're happy to have a berth, especially one with the luck of Captain Aubrey. So they're very, very grateful for Stephen and the possibility that he might put in a good word for them. Ah, Mike, so it's it's an odd, bitter sweetness, isn't it, about this set of reunions back to Wilcombe, back to Shelmerston. Hard times for everyone, happy to see each other, but uncertain about the future. And I don't know, it occurs to me that maybe some of our listeners might be feeling uncertain about the future and that perhaps they could console themselves with a glass of something from the Williams head and uh, maybe rejoin back here in a few minutes.
If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you're sitting around a pot of ale with old friends. <laughs> and we rejoin Stephen and the kids on the way home. And from the horizon, they see the Ringle tearing in. They pick up young Mr. Wells, who Jack had sent back to tell everybody back at Wilcom that he'll be back tomorrow. He'd been tossed by a pony that was he was riding on, and, and they pick him up, take him along with him. Well, when we get home... We kind of are are caught back up with, again, a little exposition about Stephen for readers joining us late in the canon here. It says, Dr. Matron had certain practices that he would have condemned in others as unhealthy, self-indulgent, even immoral, such as the smoking of tobacco and Indian hemp or bong, the drinking of alcohol in all of its forms from mild ale to brandy, the taking of opium and coca, and the frequent inhalation of nitrous oxide. But in his own case, he had nothing to say against any of them. Indeed, he judged their effect wholly beneficial. And this was because he never, or very rarely, countenanced the least excess. And so, again, you know, we've been talking about how O'Brien just paints people as real people. And again, we're getting these nuances of Stephen's character. But he's done this as a way of of setting us up to say Stephen is now taking up another one of these practices again. In the last chapter, he picked up on laudanum again. Now he's resorting back to keeping a diary again. And he realizes that as an intelligence agent, this has a number of risks, which we've, you know, we've run into in the past in his days in Boston here. It could be captured and decoded. He might be questioned, even if they can't read it, about why he's carrying this coded book. And he could expose his colleagues and allies and informers. But even with his excellent coding skills, his multiple languages, his ability to write so small that few ordinary eyes could read it, he still feels a little guilty as he adds to it, kind of reflecting his current thinking. Yeah. So, so some doubt here about whether Stephen's completely well-equipped to head on to the whatever adventures are coming in the rest of the book. He has decided then to treat all of this information that he got from Blaine about Horatio, the Duke's natural son, to treat that as confidential and to present the opportunity of taking on board this midshipman to Jack on a purely naval basis. And he thinks that he might be able to pull this off and what with Jack's character and the curiously unworldly aspects of this situation. Next day, William Reed reports that Seppings, the shipbuilder, believes that the repairs can all be done in 10 days as long as no officer, no bosun and no bosun's mate come aboard during the repairs. And Captain Aubrey is going to be asked to send word via the fishmonger's cart tomorrow if he agrees with the terms. And Mike, I, I love this. <laughs> First of all, the idea that we'll, we'll get it done in 10 days. This was work that had to be put off from being done in Gibraltar and in Funchal. And now, now that we're in Seppings' job, we can do it in 10 days. Okay. I love that they can't do it if any officer or boson or boson's mate steps aboard during the repairs, but for, for no good reason I can think of other than just bloody-mindedness. There's a rule written on drinks, coasters, and tea towels that says things you should never allow aboard a sailing boat. 
Uh, and that list of things is a bit misogynistic because top of the list is women. It's followed by grand pianos, umbrellas, and naval officers. <laughs> so clearly, these guys doing the uh, the shipwright work aboard the Surprise cling to the same idea that we don't want officers looking over our shoulders. If you'll just leave us in peace and not stick your beacon, we'll get it done for you in 10 days. So now everybody seems to be pulling back together again. We've got Jack and Stephen. We've got their families. We've got their friends officers and some midshipmen and half-brother Philip Aubrey and they're there in Chelmsden passing their time playing cricket. Stephen finally having converted his hurling skills to the game and he's partnered with with Padeen to great effect and if you're listening to this in October slash November 2023 you're going to roll your eyes and think goodness couldn't the England cricket team do with a bit of this right now but (laughs) (sighs) but on Friday, a semaphore message arrives from Portland requesting Captain Aubrey's presence in London. So off they go. Jack and Stephen make their way back to London. They arrive at the Admiralty only to learn that Sir Joseph is away until Monday. So they head for Blacks. And Mike, I wonder what's waiting for them at their club. Well, it's interesting. You know, they're there. They've had dinner. And Jack has ordered his much-desired toasted cheese. And it's just about to be delivered when the Duke of Clarence walks up to the table, says, you know, Captain Aubrey, you might not remember me, introduces himself and says, we last met right after your magnificent cutting out of the Diane. Well, Jack says, you know, I, I remember your highness perfectly. And Clarence says, an admiralty colleague mentioned to Dr. Matron his interest in a deceased shipmate's son. And he wonders whether Dr. Matron has mentioned this issue to him. And Jack says, well, yeah, yeah, the, the young man certainly couldn't have anyone better than the Duke looking after him. But as he said this, O'Brien tells us his his eyes are, are sternly looking at his toasted cheese rapidly losing its perfect crust. It's like, OK, yeah, I've heard about this. I really want to eat my toasted cheese. What well, Clarence goes into this long story about this former shipmate and his son, the storm in which he died, the shipmate's prior service with Nelson in the West Indies. I think probably knowing that for Jack, this is, this is, you know, he's ringing all the bells. And then he realizes finally that he's keeping Jack from his dinner and says, wait, let me let you have your, finish your dinner. Would you please have coffee with me afterwards when you're done? There's no hurry. You know, I've got all the time in the world. Oh, so Jack, who has with great forbearance nodded along to the heir to the throne, telling this long story about this presumed shipmate, picks away at his toasted cheese now, drinks off the rest of his wine, admires the amiable way that Clarence is taking care of what what appears to be a former shipmate's son. And Jack has that slight shore-going naivete here that we all like. And Jack says that Stephen hadn't mentioned that this matter was related to the Admiralty. And oops, awkward moment between Jack and Stephen. Stephen says, did I not? (laughs) Shock. Well, it doesn't matter, says Jack. In any case, I'm not taking any sucklings on this hard voyage. And then he sort of gives himself second thoughts. And he says, well, yeah, but the Duke of Clarence is really good to his former ratings at the uh, the Naval Hospital in Greenwich. So uh, I don't know which way is this going to go. Maybe Jack is going to go, I'm not having any of this privilege. I've been done brown in the past by people foisting unsuitable midshipmen on me. Not even for the Duke of Clarence am I going to do this. But on the other hand, the Duke of Clarence has got some pull in town and he played the Nelson card, like you said, Mike, and he's got some reputation for looking after sailors. So maybe, maybe, maybe. And 
we wondered to ourselves, what's Jack going to do? We wondered to ourselves as well, what's the Duke of Clarence going to do to make the case? So they do find Clarence later on in a discreet place in the corner. He's nervous. His face is glistening. He's cursing at a waiter to bring the coffee. He's clearly not averse to flinging a few curse words around the servants. He sees Jack and Stephen, stands up, begs them to sit and have some brandy with him. And in the politest possible way, now that he's in company, he asks the waiter to bring some of the best old Nance. Well, old Nance being a very 18th century name for the kind of brandy that was made in Nantes in northwestern France. I think, Mike, that brandy production in the 18th century moved to Cognac, moved to the Charente district. So hence it became known as Cognac from the uh, 19th century onwards. But the finest brandy back in the day then came from Nantes, and hence right Nantes was the finest kind of brandy you could get. So as as they broach this brandy, Mike, what's going to go between them here? Well, Jack tells Clarence that Dr. Matron did indeed tell him about His Highness's request. And Clarence says that he wants to give this boy the very best start under a captain for whom he has the greatest respect, a right seaman. And he and Jack kind of exchange compliments and Jack says, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly what I've told Dr. Matron before this request came up, because I believe that frankness is the best way for sailors to communicate. And Clarence says, hear him, hear him. And Jack says, look, this is a long and perilous journey. We're going to be at least 50 to 60 degrees of south latitude. It's going to be a hard midshipman's berth. There are going to be no favors. So Jack is actually sending all of his current youngsters home. He says, now, as for this young man, I'll have to take a look at him first. And if there are good feelings on both sides, you know, we got to like each other because it's a long, tough journey here, then I'll consider him here. And Jack says, if what I'm telling you doesn't disturb you, why don't you send him to the grapes to see me tomorrow? And I'll talk to him. And Claire says, well, why not here at Black's? Jack says, well, Black's is full of the opposition as well as a number of ministers. And Jack does not want to appear to be currying the favor of the court, saying emphatically that that is not what he's doing so here. And that (laughs) if he's fit for the voyage, if he's fit to become a sea officer eventually, I'll take him. But this is not a favor, if you will. Clarence thanks Jack for his frankness and wipes his nose with the back of his forefinger which O'Brien writes is a gesture familiar to Stephen. So I kind of took away that this is sort of Clarence saying, oh, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Right. You're not currying favor. Right, right. Stephen yeah. probably recognizes. I suspect Jack is completely oblivious because Jack's serious. I'm not doing this in any favors. I'm going to only do this if it's the right thing to do for the boy and for the journey here. Yeah. But they had determined that send him around tomorrow, Monday at half past two, they say. Well, the kid's got a naval eye for punctuality <laughs> because at one twenty-nine, <laughs> an hour and a minute early, Lucy taps on Jack's door at the grapes to say there's a young man there to see him. Jack says, okay, I'll be with this guy for about an hour. Bring him on in. And the 15-year-old boy looks nervous, has a bit of a cold, but he gathers his courage and delivers his Uncle William's greetings and thanks Jack very kindly for agreeing to receive him. And Jack says, well, you've never been to sea, so I'm not going to ask you questions about sails or rigging, but let's talk about mathematics. And Jack is delighted to learn that the increasingly confident Horatio is actually very well versed in mathematics, including algebra and geometry, as well as astronomy. They get to talking about the delightful moons of Jupiter. Jack asks Horatio 
to prove the Pythagorean theorem. And this is starting to get into the depths of mathematics. Uh, and poor old Stephen Maturin drifts off. And later, Horatio spots this little awkward situation and says gently into Stephen's ear, I believe the captain is speaking to you. And Stephen, reluctant to admit he's been asleep, sort of splutters into life and says, I was, uh, I was meditating on some of the Pythagoreans' wider statements. Now, Mike, there's an interesting thing to dig into here because I, I, I used to breeze straight past this reference thinking it was just something to do with you know, Euclid and Pythagorean geometry. But the Pythagoreans is a long way from A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Well, it really is. I'm like you, Ian. I said, well, what the wilder statements? What, you know, this is this is algebra. This is geometry. This is, what do you mean, wilder statements? But interestingly, there was a cult around Pythagoras, which existed for some time. They believed, like Pythagoras, that the universe and all its things were comprised of numbers and the harmonies between them. Thus, everything could be counted and explained by these numbers and harmonies so that if you want to purify your soul, you study math and science and you use music, which represents this harmony that sustains the universe. They believe that humans were animals with an advanced intellect and that animals were sentient beings with some intellect and so should not be harmed. They were vegetarians, believing it to be the healthiest and best way to to develop. But it's also consistent with their belief that anything that experienced pain or suffering should not have pain inflicted upon it unnecessarily. They gave women an equal opportunity to study, to practice all kinds of domestic avocations and tasks, as well as philosophy. And some of their leading philosophers were women. Now, we're saying, wait a minute, Stephen's talking about their, their wilder statements. So not to paint too rosy a picture, there are a number of beliefs that are that are out there a little bit, like not eating beans, meat, or fish. Now, we, we heard about meat or fish, got but beans, beans. Or that if you're actually going to meet Pythagoras, you should first spend a five-year period of silence before meeting <laughs> with him. So, and then it's about, you know, we get into reincarnation, we get into a lot of other things. But fascinating another one of these little little easter eggs from o'brien here mike it's it's a really nice easter egg to dig into this story about the pythagoreans another nice thing that i notice here is the connection between what's happening now and what we saw a few paragraphs ago stephen just a little while ago was interrogating emily and sarah on their french and latin and had not been impressed and now jack asks stephen to talk to horatio in french and latin while he jack drafts a letter to clarence And we get the assessment from the examiner. While Horatio and Sarah and Emily are sent out for a walk, Stephen gives his report. He says, the boy is agreeable, intelligent, and well-bred with above average French and acceptable Latin. So better than Sarah and Emily. Jack says that he, for his part, intends to tell tell the uncle that the boy has a surprising grasp of mathematics with application to Navy and astronomy, appearing to take pleasure in these studies, and has the makings of a sea officer. And as long as there is the ordinary allowance of 100 a year and proper uniform, he, Jack, would be happy to have Horatio as a midshipman. And he says he would still like to have a few more words with the prince and asks for an early interview tomorrow morning. Horatio comes back. Jack gives him the news, sends him off with a letter to his uncle, uncle in air quotes, and Horatio is overcome with joy. He flushes, his chin trembles. It's a, it's a really nice moment to see that Jack has been turned around on this kid. 
Well, and, and sure enough, next morning, Clarence is waiting for Jack at the appointed time. He tells Jack how pleased he was by the letter. And Jack says his final condition is that Horatio be treated as an ordinary reefer. He doesn't want any senior officer coming aboard surprise with Horatio when he's you know sending him off. Um, and he points out what a miserable time a first voyager can have if other members of the berth with little money or influence thinks that the newcomer has both. Yeah. Jack concludes, I've rarely known a privileged midshipman of that kind make a good officer. And in passing, I may say that I shall warn him very strongly against the least hint of influential friends or connections. Clarence responds with what I thought was great insight here. He says, I myself felt the weight of influence very strongly. And many, many a time did I tell myself that I should never have been made post without I was King George's son. Jack assures him that, yeah, absolutely, he would have been made post anyway, saying he's never seen a frigate in better condition than when he was alongside Clarence's Pegasus in the West Indies. So, <laughs> yeah, Clarence, Clarence is delighted. Jack's delighted. And he says he fully accepts Jack's conditions. Now, they bring Horatio in once again, tell him that Captain Aubrey will be taking him aboard the surprise. Horatio is, again, extremely moved, thanks them both. And adds an interesting comment to Captain Aubrey that he's sure his dear uncle must have been very happy to hear it. I thought, oh. Ooh, what an interesting, yeah, 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 how the relationship. But I've, I've got to admit, Ian, my, my, my Patrick O'Brien Pavlov's dog reaction light, you know, is just going blinking wildly here. Wait, another <laughs> nice young man introduced to the midshipman's berth on what promises to be a perilous mission. Please, no, please, please, please. I really... I already like this young man and delivering bad news to royalty is never a career enhancing move. So a oh, little, little worried here. <laughs> yeah. Little jeopardy. Just a little hint. Well, nobody else is, uh, is worried about this at the minute. It seems the Duke himself delivers Horatio. He's super delighted. And thanks Jack for the letter before taking his leave. Off he goes. And now that they're alone, Jack introduces Horatio to young Mr. Daniel, who's another mathematics fiend, hopes that the two will get along. And as they're getting into the coach and people are crowding around, they hear the exit of the Duke of Clarence. These loud voice cries, get out of my fucking way, you bloody cuckolds. Which is, you know, that's back to the characterization that Stephen gave of him as being a bit of a loudmouth, foulmouthed boor. Clarence is moving through the crowd. He blesses Horatio, presses a package into his hands, and then backs away, stammering something to Jack about a forgotten present. It was painful, sorry. And painful it was to see that large, pale, glabrous face fairly aswim with tears. And Mike, it, it's a really striking juxtaposition. In in public, he's foul-mouthed and sweary and rude, but privately, he's a very vulnerable character. And we we've, we've, we've got to love his heart and his his attachment to his to his son here. Yeah, yeah. As they're riding along, Horatio is only saying sort of yes, sir, and no, sir. And then he hears this clear, small bell strike 11 from this wrapped package that his uncle's shoved into his hands at the last minute there. And then Stephen's watch echoes the same bells. Stephen pulls out his watch and suggests they compare them. And Horatio opens the package, and they're the same brigade repeating watches, that watch that serves Stephen so well that we've heard about in so many different books. And Stephen offers to explain its operation to him over dinner. Ian, 
This is a watch I'm not familiar with other than having heard about it in the canon. Yes, it's one of those famous luxury watch brands that's got a lot of history. The firm of Breguet was founded in 1775. Breguet himself was an inventor of all kinds of innovative production processes and technology, as, as people tended to be quite polymath in those days. In 1801, he invented a regulator called the tourbillon regulator. And this tourbillon mechanism counters the effects that gravity plays on a watch's movement. And mounting the balance and the escapement together in a revolving cage is how it does it. I'm waving my hands here in a way that's not helpful to anybody. The Breguet Watch Company used this as a way to distinguish their watches in the marketplace. And because to, to make them more accurate, they don't tend to run fast or slow, irrespective of whether they're upside down or sideways or rotated. The Breguet Watch Company produced the final modifications to a marine chronometer in 1815. So that puts them in the same sort of territory as John Harrison, as anybody who's been to the museum at Greenwich will know. They The brand still exists today. Breguet is still a, a luxury, a very, very rarefied high-end luxury brand of watches. We spotted a marine chronograph on the Breguet website that runs $59,000. They still use the Tourbillon name. Um, there's a watch called the Breguet Grande Complication Marie Antoinette, one of the most expensive watches in the world, selling for something like $30 million if you get the version with all of the gold and the diamonds and the jewelry and the rare stones on it. Even so, Breguet was acquired by Swatch in 1999. And actually, even though they're rarefied and highly designed and expensive, lots of these watches are uh, are mass-produced. So it's rare and it's expensive, but that doesn't mean it's been made by a craftsperson. It means it's been partly mass-produced. Maybe. Maybe some people are fine with that. I don't know. <laughs> right. Anyhow, it's this old-school, handmade Breguet repeater that Horatio owns and that Stephen owns as well is clearly a little point of connection for the two of them. And um, there's another point of connection here as Horatio is still in company when they arrive at Wilcombe to meet the Aubrey clan, right? They they do. They do. They arrive at Wilcombe and Horatio is pretty emotionally worn out, but he feels a lot better in the morning with a big breakfast and a large company of naval people, you know. Uh, he's been welcomed by the family, by many members of the ship's company. He and Daniel have been exchanging some you know, really important information for, uh, for Horatio. And Harding comes in and announces, sir, we float. Now, everyone knows that this means that Seppings has finished early. So the bosun, you know, they also realize must be on hot coals to get back to rigging her. Yeah, Mike, this is a really great moment. And I, I love the way the chapter gets uh, wrapped up here. They were words that released an extraordinary amount of energy among the sailors, a decently restrained grief in Sophie, less decently in her children, and not at all in Bridget, who had to be led from the room. All this distressed the men. It did not interrupt their extremely rapid movement, coordinated movement, some going almost by instinct rather than order to their various stations, with what speed horses, wheeled vehicles, or plain feet could command, some the best mounted to Portsmouth to prepare those ordinarily slow-moving local mines for the laying in of stores. Powder and shot, salt beef, salt pork, beer, biscuit, rum, the necessary water, some linear miles of ropes and cordage, and square miles of sailcloth, carpenter stores, bosun stores, all these innumerable objects that even a modest man of war required for a voyage of enormous length. Even the common rhubarb purgative amounted to seven casks. 
end of chapter three. Oh, Mike, it, it seems like we might be finally underway. That no, Nothing signifies underway in an O'Brien novel quite like a long list of naval-sounding provisions. Right, right. And, you know, you can just quick, quick, see quick. O'Brien <laughs> peering through these old journal entries and, and bills and stuff like that to get this just right seven cask of common rhubarb purgative here. But it, it, it sounds great. The very best yard has finished the repairs. You know, Seppig's in record time here. The best sailors from Shelverson are happy to have a place with Captain Aubrey. And in place of all those press men and rejects from other ships who've deserted. So we're loving that. Stephen yeah. spent a little quality time at home. And, and it's all wonderful, except that tough parting with Bridget there at the end. And yeah. poor Sophie, too. And we even got to run into Clarissa Oaks, although we heard very little from her, although, you know, yeah. other than she's yeah. married again. And we even have a fine new midshipman with royal connections, not just the poor quality ones that Jack picked up in Gibraltar here. So there's there's still a bit of jeopardy to go around, I think, Mike. We've got the question of how well are the midshipmen's berth going to get along. We've got a question of this guy, Lindsay, right. who seems to be setting out on a rival mission. We've got economic hardship at home. Like you say, Mike, I'm still missing hearing just how Sophie's getting along. So... Things are going well, and it's been great to get back to some of these characters, at least just for a moment. It's great as well that with all Stephen's worries about his letters to Christine, he has at least had a nice one from her and some potto bones to boot. Yeah, and and we've got this kind of resounding, you know, what's happening with the Chileans as, as you know, even though we're getting underway, we have a long journey to get there. You know, like you said, the potential impatience, this rival with a short temper who kind of prefers to give orders and doesn't like to follow them. But, you know, yeah. Sir Joseph is saying, you know, work with them when you get there. And the possibility of, of different revolutionary groups fighting for independence, you know, hopefully not against one another, uh, not knowing what's going to happen here. All of this worries me about what's going to be happening in Chile once they arrive there. But then yeah. I kind of say to myself, once they arrive there, it's a long journey ahead. Right. I mean, they've got to cross an ocean. They've presumably got to get the surprise further than 200 yards along the way before she either encounters a dockyard fire or a collision. Like, who knows? We could do chapter after chapter of momentary setbacks for the surprise. We might be getting ourselves a little bit too far ahead here. We know that there's this hard journey coming. Jack has painted this as a trip around the hall. We've had some foreshadowing about the risks that were encountered by people in Magellan's shoes who went past the Cape, what's happening in Chile might end up being the least of our worries. We've still got to get there, like you say, Mike. O'Brien is still in sparkling form writing. We've had some really great descriptions, some great use of character, some great Easter eggs for us to dig into. So even though this is the last full book in the series, there's still plenty to look ahead for us for, uh, for chapter four. So Mike, I guess there's only one way to find out what's in store for our characters and for us as readers. What do you say next time to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart.
Bridget, George, and his sisters are all keen to go with Paddington running alongside. So riding along. Did you say Stephen, Paddington running alongside? Oh, I think I did. There you go. <laughs> Much as I love Paddington, we're just not downtown London here. Yeah. 